Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Mount Sinai researchers have conducted one of the first studies to show the acute effect of obstructive sleep apnea on Alzheimer's disease biomarkers, demonstrating that untreated OSA may increase the risk for developing neurodegenerative disease. Here to talk to us today about the study is author Dr. Andrew Varga, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Varga. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me about this study. So we were really interested in understanding the acute effect of sleep apnea on Alzheimer's disease biomarkers and uh, markers of neural injury. And so we embarked on a study in which we recruited subjects uh, who have known severe sleep apnea at baseline, um, but who are also uh, very adherent to treatment of their apnea with a PAT machine that we know by virtue of download from their, mm. uh, from their PAT machine. And um, had them come on two different nights uh, to do sleep studies, one night in which we asked them to use uh, their PAT machine at the pressures that are therapeutic as they ordinarily would at home, and then a separate night in which we asked them to discontinue their PAT machine two nights prior to coming into the lab so that the recorded night represented their third night off PAP, and we expect that they would have recapitulation of their severe OSA on that night. And in was, that, this con- was that hard to convince them to do? No, generally not. Um, yeah, the you know, yeah, no is the short answer. <laughs> I imagine I would get a lot of pushback if I asked um, some of my patients who are adherent and severe to do this. I think I would get a little bit of pushback. Yeah, usually when it's relatively short term, people don't have too much of a problem with it. That's fantastic. It's been my experience. <laughs> so keep going. Yeah, so in this context, uh, you know, we had people. Um, complete blood draws before and after sleep, right? So uh, essentially right before sleep and then and then immediately after. And uh, the idea was to then, you know, analyze uh, that collected blood for overnight change in uh, proteins that uh, are related to Alzheimer's disease and, and neural injury. And in particular, we looked at uh, beta amyloid 42 and 40 isoforms, um, levels of total tau and levels of this protein neurofilament light, which serves as a marker for neural injury. Oh, so that's interesting. I, I don't know that I've heard of neurofilament light before. Yeah, so neurofilament light is uh, an axonal protein that gets released in response to neural injury. It's um, something that's not uh, completely specific to Alzheimer's disease. So, for example, you can see it go up in, in other disorders like multiple sclerosis. Huh. Um, but um, the, the Alzheimer's field has been, I would say, fairly interested in this as a biomarker um, because it tracks very closely with uh, Alzheimer's disease progression. So as people progress from you know, being cognitively normal to uh, having mild cognitive impairment or MCI to then bona fide Alzheimer's disease, levels of neurofilament light, both in the spinal fluid and the, in the plasma, um, increase very reliably. Um, and in addition, there's some evidence um, suggesting that uh, even in cognitively normal people, there's an inverse relationship between your levels of, of neurofilament light and cognitive performance such that, you know, kind of higher baseline levels of neurofilament light seem to predict, you know, worse cognitive performance, even oh, if you wow. are cognitively normal. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So how is this different from previous research? 
you know, you can you can approach the uh, interaction between uh, you know sleep apnea and Alzheimer's in a lot of ways. Um, you know, some of it's been based on uh, you know non-objectively measured uh, assessments of sleep apnea, right? So by questionnaire, by self-diagnosis. Oh, sure. Um, so, you know, having, you know, actual objective measurement was, was, I think, important here. The other, I would say one of the main differences is that, you know, much of the work has, um, you know, really assessed um, cross-sectional associations between uh, hmm. apnea and biomarkers at sort of one time point or looked at um, longitudinal associations between having uh, a diagnosis of, of sleep apnea that's in, in most cases untreated and looking at how um, that impacts longitudinal risk. Um, but this was, you know, I think a real first attempt at understanding what's happening very acutely and what's happening sort of dynamically over, over the night, right, from the beginning of the night to right. the end of the night, uh, um, either on or off PAP. Um, so who are the patients that were involved? I mean, are these sort of anybody that you found that had severe sleep apnea or were they maybe genetically preloaded, you know, felt to be at higher risk for Alzheimer's? Yeah. So these were subjects who um, were recruited, you know, essentially from a sleep clinic um, who are, you know, the main entry criteria was was essentially that they have severe sleep apnea mm. and that they they use PAP on a, on a regular basis to treat it. Outside of that, there were no other special sort of uh, inclusion criteria. So, no, they were not uh, specifically, you know, selected for for having any increased Alzheimer's risk, like, you know, carrying uh, isoforms of APOE4 or things like oh, that. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. They, you know, they were, you know, we did not want people that had other sort of neurologic or, or psychiatric disorders. So, you know, they were excluded. But that was pretty easy to, you know, to figure out really early on. So. <laughs> And so then was there criteria, Criteria, you know, I'm, I'm guessing they had to be well-controlled, right? And Correct. did they have to have maybe been on PAP therapy for years or months or? Yeah, we um, required that they be on PAP therapy for at least two months. Um, so it could be, you know, relatively recent, but just, you know, someone who's really documented that adherence. Um, and, you know, we used... Um, you know, the, the general Medicare sort of uh, criteria for, for adherence, you know, four hours sure. or more per night for 70% or more of nights. So you would touch on um, some biomarkers, and I will be the first to say this as a pulmonologist. <laughs> so, you know, you're rattling off these biomarkers. And so in my brain, I kind of think of beta amyloid and I think of tau associated with Alzheimer's. But it is that correct or am I am I wrong? Am I thinking about something else? No, those, that's correct. I mean, those are, um, I would say, the the primary pathologic proteins in Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, fortunately for our field, you know, they're able to be measured in a variety of ways. I would say historically, those those biomarkers have been measured in, in spinal fluid because that's the fluid that's most proximal to, to neurons. Um, you can also measure those biomarkers with PET imaging. I will say that while each of those things is is highly useful and interesting, they're also a little bit complicated, right? In the sense right. that PET's kind of very expensive, requires exposure to a radio ligand, um, collecting spinal fluid, you know, requires that you put someone through a lumbar puncture. So um, we became very interested in this idea of, of sort of assessing these biomarkers in the plasma. And that's something that has historically been a bit challenging to do, mostly because um, although these, uh, you know, amyloid and tau biomarkers exist in plasma, they exist in, in very tiny concentrations. And so using 
you know, classical, you know, sort of ELISA measurements of these proteins was was really challenging, and you could not meaningfully measure concentrations of things like amyloid and tau in, in the in the plasma until you know maybe about uh, somewhere between five and ten years ago, um, when this uh, what's called Samoa technology came out. Um, that's an acronym that stands for single SI molecule MO array ASIMOA. Um, that um, is more or less a fancy ELISA, but it has, uh, without getting into the nitty gritty of it, this, just the ability to detect, you know, like picomolar, really tiny oh, wow. uh, concentrations of, of proteins in the blood. And so, sort of once that became available, um, people started really looking at, you know, these Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's biomarkers in, in plasma and started, there, there's been a whole uh, number of, of papers over the years um, showing that, you know, these can be measured in really meaningful ways, right? That, uh, for example, that these measured in plasma and that they do, um, correspond to disease progression, right? As you clinically progress from, uh, you know, normal cognition to mild cognitive impairment to, to huh. full-blown Alzheimer's. Also that they, they correlate to a reasonable degree with other measures of these biomarkers, right? So that the plasma levels of, of these biomarkers do in fact correlate with, you know, uh, imaging biomarkers, right, by pet imaging or, or in the spinal fluid. So, it's been a lot of work suggesting that, you know, <laughs> these, the, the, you know, you can really do this, right? You can really yeah. <laughs> meaningfully yeah, yeah, measure yeah. these biomarkers in the plasma and it, it really means something. So. so, then, so then we've sort of established that measuring these biomarkers in the plasma correlates to other imaging. And so, we believe it, right? So, Correct. so what, what happened with the study then? What, what was the result? Yeah, so uh, kind of two main results, right? So uh, of the four uh, biomarkers that we looked at, we saw that there were uh, significant overnight change differences in two of the biomarkers in, in neurofilament light and in uh, beta amyloid 40. So when you went uh, off PAP, uh, neurofilament light, this is a marker of neural injury, uh, increased relatively overnight. Uh, mm -hmm off PAP as compared to when you're treated. And uh, in addition, we saw that uh, beta amyloid 40 actually decreased uh, off PAP uh, relative to being on treatment. And uh, we did not observe changes in um, beta amyloid 42 or in total tau. So um, like I said, the real big changes were in uh, huh. this neurofilament lipoprotein and, and beta amyloid 40. And so what, the, oh, what, does this, what does this tell us then? Yeah, so I think the um, the interpretation for uh, neurofilament light is a little bit more straightforward, <laughs> in the sense that <laughs> you know we we think of it as this uh, marker for neural injury, mm -hmm. and what we see is that it's it's increasing overnight, right, when people go off PAP, and, right, in comparison to when they're treated on PAP, and so the interpretation there I think is relatively straightforward, which is that this is some of the first evidence showing that acutely induced you know sleep apnea creates some level of neural injury, right, that can be measured with this neurofilament light uh, so protein. So, that, that sounds kind of scary to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> how should I, you know, when you say that, I'm like, oh my gosh, so does this mean that when I have a patient that is like going fishing for a weekend and doesn't want to take his CPAP, should I be worried about his brain health? <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think that we would probably encourage people not to take breaks from from using their pat machine that said i mean i think it is common for people to do that mm -hmm. and um you know i mean i think we want to um you know not uh scare people i mean i think that this is evidence suggesting that there's some 
you know, neural injury that happens, but um, I don't think there's necessary evidence that this is, you know, irreversible neural injury, right? So this may be more like a, a bruise, so to speak, that, that we don't know whether, right, that this is, you know, something that's going to be permanent or, right, or whether uh, this is something that, you know, just represents an injury that is going to then recover uh, over time. So I, you know, I think that it's just another piece of evidence suggesting that it's probably not a great idea to take too many <laughs> breaks from your pat machine, but uh, I wouldn't go over the top with the uh, threat that you're going to become permanently right. <laughs> brain, brain damaged from. Well, because from I think that. that's I think that's it, right? I think we need to be realistic about what our patients, you know, are doing and how this fits in with their lifestyle, and and how do we appropriately inform them of this potential risk? And I love that analogy of it, it may be a bruise, right? This may not be permanent damage, but you know we. You know we don't know and so if we can minimize <laughs> the time off of cpap um you know the other thing that really strikes me about this is that this is a lovely research study on the importance of treating obstructive sleep apnea that doesn't have a cardiovascular endpoint right this is more cognition yeah i mean i would say that um you know there's there's lots of reasons to right treat people that have apnea Right. Um, you know, many times people have, you know, uh, acute symptoms, right? I mean, snoring, sleepiness, et cetera, that it's obvious, right, that you should, you should treat them. We, we, I think as a field, we've had um, the idea that, you know, even if someone is asymptomatic, that they should probably be treated. That um, supposition, I think, was based a lot on these ideas that apnea was bad for your cardiovascular health, right? That it right. increased your you know, predisposition to hypertension and to potentially, you know, uh, you know, things like um, myocardial infarction or cardiac right. arrhythmia. So there's been a really big focus. Um, and I think that, you know, I th less focus has been placed on, um, you know, sort of memory outcomes and neurodegenerative risk outcomes. But I think the literature on this is, is really growing. And I think this is starting to be something that, I mean, I certainly discuss more <laughs> frequently with, with my patients in the clinic. And, and I would imagine that, you know, many sleep physicians are perhaps starting to as well with, with theirs. So, so when you were looking at patients, did you select only sleepy patients or non-sleepy patients? Like, was that any part of the process? No, that was that was okay. not a specific uh, a priori inclusion or exclusion. Oh, that's interesting. So you've done a lot of research related to obstructive sleep apnea and cognitive health, and you kind of separate. I, I hear you separated into two things, right? You talk about memory, and then you talk about cognition. So help me understand what you're referring to for both one both of those. Yeah, sure. I, I you know I think that there's. Um, the, you know, the ability to learn new facts today and remember them tomorrow, right, is something that I call prospective memory, right? And sleep apnea uh, seems to impair that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, I would say, an important adverse consequence of, of having apnea is that you have this reduction in prospective memory. And, you know, there was um, a really great uh, clinical trial that was uh, published last year by my colleague, uh, Ina John Luggage at Harvard, that uh, showed that if you take people with newly diagnosed uh, sleep apnea and test them in this prospective uh, form of memory, right, in, the, in this study in particular, it was a word pair task. You just memorize word pairs before sleep and then get asked them again in the morning, right? The people with apnea do worse on this, right, as compared to people sure. that don't have apnea. And then she did a small, but nonetheless really bona fide randomized clinical trial 
of, of PAP for the treatment of OSA. And in those people randomized to PAP, um, when they repeated this uh, overnight memory test um, several weeks later, you know, did much better on it and were performing at levels as com that were comparable to people that didn't have any apnea at all. Whereas the people that were assigned to, you know, sort of watchful waiting and, and no treatment huh. in the interim uh, really had no change. And so, t I mean, personally, I find that like a really interesting and exciting. I mean, it shows right. that, uh, you know, PAP is doing something for prospective memory. But the thing that's, I think, important to um, to note is that whether that is true or not is something that possibly is dissociable from the risk of sleep apnea on subsequent cognitive decline and and developing something like Alzheimer's disease. In other words, right, whether uh, PAP does or does not immediately improve your prospective memory is theoretically dissociable from whether PAP is going to, over long periods of time, kind of prote protect you and slow your if you're someone who's predisposed yeah. right, or predestined to getting Alzheimer's disease, whether using PAP is going to slow that uh, trajectory, right? And, you know, we we think they're sort of related in the sense that, you know, people that are predestined to develop Alzheimer's disease, I mean, start by having some memory. prospective memory right. deficits, but then over time, it actually converts to including retrospective memory deficits. Right? So, not only are you having difficulty remembering new items or new things from life, but the things that you have remembered, right? Like your first grade elementary school teacher's name and stuff that's like <laughs> way back in the past, that starts to fade also, right? That's what I'd call yeah, like yeah, retros yeah. Ret retrospective memory, right? So um, so all I'm saying is that the, uh, it's, it's important to think about these things in potentially dissociable ways. See, I think that's so interesting. And again, as a pulmonologist, I have never considered that as two separate, you know, I just sort of lump it all in as, you know, brain stuff. <laughs> I don't really think about it, right? As this is a distinct process that it is, like you're saying, dissociable from the other. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind. So how did you come up with the idea for doing this study? Yeah, this study has a kind of a great backstory, uh, which is that... Uh, <laughs> I was attending um, something that's called the uh, International Symposium on Sleep and Breathing, which is a, a small meeting that occurs uh, roughly every two years and uh, last occurred in uh, 2019 in uh, Finland. And uh, I met uh, Jonathan John there, who's um, an associate professor at Johns Hopkins, who also does sleep apnea research, mm. um, but in a really totally different domain. He's really interested in um, sort of sleep apnea effects on metabolism, especially on where you metabolize things like fatty acids and glucose Ooh. and things. Um, and so he had um, subjects who were coming in for this PAP withdrawal paradigm where his primary question was to address, you know, to what extent PAP withdrawal ended up impacting, you know, these, these other metabolic aspects of things. And I said, you know, that's such a great paradigm. And, um, you know, we've had these interests in understanding, you know, acute effects of, of apnea on, on Alzheimer's risk. And I explained to him that, you know, there was this, you know, sort of new technology, right, that allowed us right. to kind of meaningfully measure um, these Alzheimer's biomarkers in plasma. And I said, you know, what do you think about, you know, sharing these samples? And he said, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Let's, <laughs> let's, awesome. let's, let's do it. And so I said, okay, that's really cool. And, um, and also as part of this, uh, dinnertime conversation in Finland was was my colleague at Mount Sinai, Dr. Cord Cam, 
um, who also has uh, related interests in understanding um, associations between uh, sleep apnea and Alzheimer's disease. And so Corey and I got back to the to the states and we put our heads together and we said, you know, we should we should write a grant, you know, to to do this and to get some money to to actually, yeah, um, you know, analyze some of these samples that Jonathan has. And um, and so Corey and I worked together and um, submitted a, a grant proposal to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine foundation um, who have a, a focused projects um, grant mechanism that's um, uh, that's actually grown at the time that we applied for it. It was sort of a $20,000 grant. I think it's now grown to $40,000. Oh, but wow. in any case, um, you know, we, we applied for this and, and we were fortunate enough to get this funded by, by the American Academy oh. of Sleep Medicine Foundation, which was really fantastic. And that gave us, you know, the, the f- needed funding to, to be able to uh, to do the analysis on these uh, plasma samples. And so um, Jonathan, uh, you know, arranged for transfer of these samples from, from Johns Hopkins to Mount Sinai. And then we used, like I said, the ASM Foundation uh, funds to, to run the analysis. And, and, uh, I, and I love how you had to go to paper. Finland. I love how you had to go to Finland to meet him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and, then, and then we, and then we uh, hit the sauna afterward. Oh, of course you did. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> So let's take a short break and we'll talk more about your research in just a moment. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Prepare for your board exams or review your general sleep knowledge at Sleep Medicine Essentials. Attend virtually September 15th through the 18th or watch recordings at your leisure. For details and to register, visit aasm.org SME. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Our guest today is Dr. Andrew Varga, and we're talking about research suggesting that untreated sleep apnea may increase the risk for neurodegenerative disease. So you're hanging out in the sauna, <laughs> you're talking about, about biomarkers. Um, how long did it take for you sort of from start to finish to complete the study? Um, I mean, it took uh, probably three years, really, right? I mean, this, oh, wow. we, the, the meeting was in uh, 2019. Um, we probably wrote and submitted the grant in 2020 and, and probably did much of the work of it in, in 2021. And then once we had the results, kind of wrote it up and things, and it, it just got published in uh, June of 2022. So, yeah, so from start to finish, uh, like I said, just shy of three years. But um, So did you have access then to their PSG beforehand? Meaning, you know, I'm kind of wondering if there is something within that PSG that may be predictive Correct. Yeah. So um, we had the PSG data from both nights that they completed, right? So their their night that was on PAP when when sleep was presumably pretty ordinarily consolidated, mm-hmm. as well as the the night that we asked them to discontinue their their PAP two nights ahead of time, um, in which you know apnea was uh, present and, and pretty rampant. And so um, yeah, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, right uh, off PAP, <laughs> pe- people had uh, you know pretty severe sleep apnea. I think the the AHI four percent on average in this group was was around sixty. Oh wow! Um, and we had access to you know at least some of the standard um, sleep physiology measures that come out of a, a scored report, right? So things about sleep stages and, and mm. measures of hypoxemic burden. And so as part of the study, we were interested in understanding you know whether or not. Um, there were significant predictors of these overnight changes in, in either neural filament light or in A-beta-40, which were the two biomarkers that we saw significant changes in between conditions. And so we, we ran some analyses um, looking, you know, at whether uh, any sleep physiology predictors uh, existed. And we found, in fact, that 
um, measures of hypoxemic burden as measured by the time spent with an oxygen saturation below 90%, um, as well as measures of sleep fragmentation, which included the uh, number of sleep stage transitions, were both significant predictors for the overnight change in uh, neurofilament light, this marker of neural injury. Um, we did the same thing for uh, beta amyloid 40, but we didn't find any uh, significant predictors uh, for that one. Oh, so that's interesting. So they weren't necessarily both um, impacted the same way. Correct. Oh, interesting. So intermittent hypoxia and sleep fragmentation, which, I mean, makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I will say that, um, you know, our a priori hypothesis um, was that uh, we would hit on some uh, marker of hypoxemic burden as a potential predictor uh, for neurofilament light. Um, because we really thought that it was more likely that, you know, the intermittent hypoxia is what's really sort of, you know, injuring neurons and, and leading to that release in neurofilament light. Um, whether the um, sleep fragmentation is also, you know, really physiologically a predictor, I think we need to still kind of work on an answer a little bit. I mean, I think the, the reason I'm uh, questioning it a little bit is because um, although we saw that sleep stage transitions was a, was a significant, significant predictor, we didn't see the other markers of sleep fragmentation that you might expect mm. would, would be would be more important, right? Like like the arousal index or something, yeah. right? Um, we didn't see that as a predictor. So um, I think you know, like I said, work work is still ahead of us, uh, us and, and the rest of the the field to uh, to kind of suss this out a little bit. But um, that's really surprising to me. You know, because when I think about sleep stage transition, right, I mean, when you have all these arousals, <laughs> you, know, you see that somebody's sleep is super fragmented and choppy, you know, in my brain, I, I think I think about, you know, cognition in those patients and sleepiness and that sort of thing. And so it's interesting what you're describing. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... You know, I don't know. I think sleep stage transitions are interesting as a marker of sleep fragmentation, but you would sort of expect that they would potentially go along with things like arousal indices. Right. And it's, and, and like I said, the fact that those kind of dissociated in terms of the prediction for, for neurofilament light makes me kind of question a little bit how that is physiologically fully relevant. Right. Uh, and so what I was wondering is, did you have access to like their initial diagnostic study which I, I'm guessing now thinking about it, that would be pretty hard to do. <laughs> but, you know, I just wonder um, if that was part of what you analyzed. But it sounds like it was the two, sort of the pre and the post. Yeah, so I guess my, my honest answer is that I'm unsure whether we had access or not to the ah. original diagnostic study. If we did have access to it, it was not something that we really used as part of the study. Rather, we used the the data that we collected from the PSGs, like on the two intervention nights that we, yeah, that makes that sense. we actually had. That makes sense. So, you know, we've had a lot of um, conversations around CPAP and um, cardiovascular outcomes, right? That AHRQ report came out and it said, well, we're not really sure if CPAP is helpful for cardiovascular outcomes, right? And does this type of data that you're sharing with us, how does this reframe maybe how we should be looking at outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Um 
you know, we need to be thinking about outcomes across, you know, many organ systems. You know, uh, I'm a neurologist, so <laughs> obviously I <laughs> focus a lot on kind of brain outcomes. And I think those, as you pointed out, have been kind of under underrepresented a bit. But there's even other ones, right? I mean, there's there's endocrine outcomes, there's, there's other organ system outcomes. And so I think we do need to kind of uh, get beyond a sole focus on, on cardiovascular. Um, but even beyond that, I mean, I think that, you know, we need, you know, we need you know, more studies and more research, right? I mean, just as an example that, you know, this particular approach that we took shows an effect of acute PAP withdrawal, but it sort of raises kind of the obvious question, which is, well, what, you know, is the opposite thing true, right? I mean, do you, can you take someone that is newly diagnosed, right, with, right. with sleep apnea and, and actually put them on PAP and, and show that if they kind of meaningfully use PAP over some time that you can, you know, reduce this measure of, of neural injury, um, I mean, that's something that remains to be to be seen. Oh, uh, I smell, I I smell a-, a new research project. Right, exactly. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, I think that's just it. You know, we when we listen to our patients and they're like, yeah, I feel sharper. I don't have the brain fog. I, you know, I can remember things again. You know, to me in my brain, I'm, I'm marrying that with, oh, well, yeah, because you're not hypoxic anymore and your sleep is better. And so it would be interesting to see if that's actually true or if that's just sort of wishful thinking on my part. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that that needs to be done in uh, all sorts of ways that are some of which are more easy or easier and others of which are not. Right. I mean, I think, you know, randomized clinical trials are often considered the gold standard, right, by right. which we judge, um, right, the effect of a treatment such as something like PAP. Um, but, you know, those are often hard to do. Right. I mean, I think if you again, if you kind of compare to the uh, cardiovascular world, right? There's all many of the clinical trials for PAP in in those studies have been right, basically negative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's because a lot of different reasons. I mean, one of the big ones I think probably has to do with adherence, right? You, right, you exactly. randomize people to PAP and then they don't really use it that much, and it's kind of like, okay, yeah. So I, <laughs> you, you didn't see you didn't see an effect because people didn't use the treatment, right? Well, I think so, that's I mean, it, I, right? Three point yeah. three hours. It's like you know taking your lisinopril like every other night and expecting it to work. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so I think you're so I think you've hit on something really important, right? That a lot of our data is based on sort of relooking at data that was from a study meant to look for something else, right? Like cardiovascular endpoints and those are the preliminary endpoints and then we look at all these secondary endpoints to try to pull out sleep data. Yeah, I mean, um I think I think randomized clinical trials are useful, but I think, you know, relying on them as the sole source of data on which to I mean, A, make policy decisions or B, like guide your clinical practice is mm-hmm. not a not a great way to approach things, right? So, you need <laughs> like so you need lots of approaches. I, I, mm-hmm. I will say, I don't mean to like digress or, or very much, but, you know, we're um, actually, we've recently proposed to do a randomized clinical trial for the treatment of sleep apnea on memory and Alzheimer's disease biomarkers. And um, part of the approach we're taking is to... Um, treat apnea kind of by any means, right? That reduces the AHI, right? So take people with newly diagnosed OSA and say, instead of saying, we're going to randomize you to PAP or not, say, we're going to randomize you to OSA treatment or not. And we're going to try to maximize the treatment through a combination of both efficacy and and usage, right? So um, so we're, we're trying to offer people, you know, oral appliances or positional therapy or some combination of those two in addition to um, to PAP. And what we're proposing to do is to rapidly cycle people 
through each of these treatments with assessments, you know, very rapid, right, within like a week or something. So, huh. to, to figure out, you know, A, whether the treatment that you're that the subject has selected works and whether they're really going to use it. And then if that treatment meaningfully reduces their AHI, then you can say, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to keep you on that treatment and see what the outcomes are. Right? And we're hoping that that approach you know, really helps this adherence issue that's kind of plagued a lot of the other uh, prior uh, randomized clinical trials of the treatment of sleep apnea. Well, and I think you've hit on something really important, right? Like when we talk about sleep apnea, the end game isn't to get people into CPAP. The end game is to just treat their sleep apnea and it really doesn't, you know, however you want to treat it is fine, right? <laughs> so it's it's nice that you're um, you're willing to look at this and kind of get outside of CPAP, which I think means that it's going to be a little bit more challenging, right? Because there's like this time involved in getting them an oral appliance or, or what have you. Um, but I think it's meaningful because that's more real world experience, right? And that's more, you know, partnership and collaboration with our patient um, and doing something that I think makes sense to them and something really that we haven't hit on before, I don't think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on both fronts. I mean, I think it it will be more challenging, um, <laughs> but um, but no, I think we have uh, the infrastructure in place to really to really do it. And I, and I think you're right. I think that in the end, it's it's something that I think mimics more real life, real world ways of approaching apnea. And um, and if you can show that that approach, you know, has meaningful uh, outcomes on you know whatever you're interested in, whether it's cardiovascular disease, sleepiness, you know, uh, AD biomarkers. I mean, it's it's a potentially you know translatable approach for for anybody who's interested in OSA treatment outcomes. Wow, a lot a lot has grown in neurology since like my one month rotation on neurology, my intern year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. So, any any final thoughts? Oh, um, no, just I like I said, I appreciate the opportunity to to talk about this work, and um, you know, we we are excited for for many things that I talked about that we, you know, we're uh, doing in our own lab currently uh, at Mount Sinai in terms of looking at you know treatment, um, whether with PAP, whether with oral appliances and other things, and uh, you know, encourage uh, you know other sleep clinicians and scientists to uh, to consider. Um, you know, brain outcomes, both in the memory uh, domain and in the Alzheimer's domain as, as potential areas of interest. No, I think you're right. And I and I, that's what I love about our field is that, um, you know, you can come to our field in, with so many different backgrounds, right? And I think that that only enhances, you know, what we can offer as, a, you know, this unified field of sleep medicine, because we're not all the same. And we all, you know, come at it looking at something else. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's what so many people love about sleep medicine that get into it, right? Is this this really sort of it, it bridges so many fields, and mm -hmm. um, and it's it, and it's great to and you you know you meet people and you collaborate, and it's 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 great. I I love being in sleep medicine. And you get to hang out in a sauna in Finland. I mean, what could be <laughs> right, better, exactly. right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about your research and for continuing to explore the links between obstructive sleep apnea and cognition. And I really appreciate you highlighting the difference between recall memory and cognitive decline. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. 
For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.